Well, hey there, and welcome to a special edition episode of Clickbait Church Podcast. Today is part one of a two-part series on a subject that isn't mentioned often enough in the church. Today we're talking about racism and the church. It's all clickbait nowadays. The Baptist Church has voted to accept the LGBT community, putting them actually at odds now with many in their denomination. Churches are a cornerstone of American life. Do you know what the internet desperately needs? More clickbait. clickbait. I'm Chris Prince, and this is Clickbait Church, a podcast about culture, how the church fits into it, and what we can learn from each other. Listen up. You won't believe your ears. Welcome back to the podcast. We've had an extended break since Christmas, but today we are back trying to tackle one of the biggest subjects we've ever touched, and that is racism. Now, before I bring in my guest today, I want to speak directly about what this episode will be and what it won't be. First, this episode is not about whether or not racism is wrong, because racism is 100% wrong and unbiblical. The Bible does not teach us to hate, but to love. Racism is rooted in pride and hate, and it is literally loving yourself more than someone else because of the color of their skin. It goes against the very nature of God. It is 100% wrong and unbiblical. So this episode isn't about if it's wrong, because we know that it is. Secondly, this episode is not about any specific denomination or flavor of Christianity. We're not talking about racism in the church. We're talking about racism, social injustices, and prejudices that humans have that we need to learn to acknowledge and to take action on as Christians. We have a mandate as Christians to reach the world and the people in it, and so that means all people. Lastly, this episode will probably be controversial, and that's on purpose. I mean, it's clickbait church, first off. What do you expect? But anytime that we start talking about the church, we talk about Christians, and we talk about race, there's going to be some things that work against the very nature of who we are at times. And because of that, we could lean into politics, into situations of social injustice, into topics that are sometimes considered more liberal and more conservative than others. And this is necessary to have an all-encompassing conversation. My only request for you today is that you listen with an open mind. Be prepared to be convicted. Be prepared to feel bad maybe about things you've said and done. Be prepared to listen with an open heart, with an open mind. And now I do want to introduce my guest for today. Rico Smith is a preacher who currently lives in Mississippi and has preached all over the nation. More importantly for today's conversation, I'm a white guy and Rico is black. And we got connected only a few weeks ago, but after talking on the phone a few times, um, I honestly believe that, that we connected so quickly because of a desire to help shape the future and the perspective of race and the church with a passion. And so Rico... Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, um, Brother Chris. Um, I appreciate you and all that you do. And the reason why I called him Brother Chris is because it's just church jargon. I could have just even <laughs> called him Chris. And so he and I are fellow ministers and fellow workers and laborers in the field that is the world for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So I appreciate him and I appreciate the invitation being extended um, to be on a clickbait church. Um, podcast, um, very intriguing and interesting name. So with a name <laughs> like that, you know that something heavy is about to go down. So 
I appreciate him and I just pray God's grace on the both of us that we'll speak intelligibly um, but passionately about the topics that we are about to discuss. So thank you all for joining us and thank you, Chris, for having me. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we've we've had a couple of private conversations now, as well as uh, we have we have been a part of some online conversations. And God bless those can be a little bit more uh, jarring than the personal conversations that we've had. Uh, But but before we really jump into the topic of of race in the sense of the church and as Christians, how we can respond. And before we even start talking about uh, some of the situations that started us having a conversation, the social injustices that are happening around us today, I want to talk first just a little bit and get, let, let my audience get to know you a a little bit better. Rico, tell us, tell us a little bit about uh, you, your family, uh, what it was like growing up. Uh, Did you grow up in Mississippi and, and kind of uh, what it, what it was like growing up uh, as, as a, a black kid, because I don't know that experience. Well, yes, I was born and raised in Mississippi. In fact, in the city of Starkville, I was born and raised in Starkville, Mississippi, Tippahaw County, um, just north of Knoxville County, um, which was my hometown where we resided in Macon, Mississippi. But I lived in a very, very, very small um, countryside um, of Macon, Mississippi, which was labeled um, Lucas Hill, Mississippi. And so growing up down there in the deep country is what we called it. We called it the swamp. And it was not considered the swamp as we call drain the swamp in politics, but it was considered a swamp because we had many swamps around us <laughs> growing up, um, woods and cesspools and all of those things in different natures. But um, I grew up there um, with myself and my two siblings who I lived in the house with, with my mom. But to give a little context to my background and upbringing, Um, Until I was the age of six, I was raised in one home that only had five bedrooms and two baths, but was occupied by over 30 people at one time. It had been my mom's living arrangement until I um, reached the age of six, um, meaning that my sister and my brother lived through that much longer than I did because I am the baby. And when I um, reached age six, my mom decided that it was time to move out what we considered to be the family home or what we called the house, where just about everyone in our family who was born and raised and were living in Mississippi each had a stay at the house, at least for the better part of a decade or more. Um, or into adulthood when they started having children. So many of my family members came through that home and end up um, moving out when they reached adulthood and started having children. Well, my mom was still there until I turned age six, as I stated. And then we moved into the city, which was called Macon, Mississippi, still the country, but it was the city part <laughs> of what we considered. And um, so that's part of my upbringing. Um, I'm married. Now I've been married for seven years to my darling wife, Christian Smith. We have three daughters, um, Ivy Grace, who is six years old. As I just mentioned, I was six when I moved away. But my my daughter, my oldest, my eldest is six years old, Ivy Grace Smith. And then we have Kinsley Elizabeth Smith, who is four years old. And then we have our baby, Madeline Rose Smith, who is three years old. So just outnumbered with girls. 
man, I am outnumbered with girls. We tried for boys, but it looks like the Lord was saying, look, I want you to have some beautiful brides for the, <laughs> the, for the men I'm going to put in their lives. So, hey, I accepted the will of the Lord after um, girl number two and just stopped even praying for a boy. Just started accepting whatever he allowed. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, we've been married for seven years. Um, we are actually high school um, sweethearts. We started dating in 2007. And so we've been together for a total of 13 years. But because of our upbringing and being apostolic, we did not shack. We did not live with one another before we got married. We did not cohabitate before we got married. So I thank God for that. Neither did we have any children before we got married. So our people were not just old fashioned. They truly believed um, that that was the way to be without committing for um, fornication. But not to go off into that branch of topic right now. Um, when did I realize that I was growing up a black kid? Well, I realized that early, very early. I think I was the age between the ages of seven and nine. And um, my favorite place to go at that time was Walmart because I was a gigantic WWF fan. If anyone anyone knows me knew I was a gigantic wrestling fan. I was a wrestling fanatic. Hulk Hogan, Roddy Piper, but my favorite was The Undertaker. Man, who <laughs> could not get enough of The Undertaker rolling his eyes in the back of his head, fighting like a slow-paced zombie. And so my favorite place to visit was Walmart, um, going to look for wrestling toys. And Gargoyle Toys was a show that was playing at Disney, I mean on Disney Channel at the time. And Batman and Bonkers and all of that good stuff. But I would always go to Walmart and look for Power Rangers and Gargoyle and wrestling figures. And it wasn't until then that we were standing in line at one of the Walmarts in Columbus, Mississippi. And I received looks from a elderly white lady. And um, the look that I received were, were not... Um, pretty looks. They were not uh, looks that you would give to anyone else's child or your own child for that matter, mm. unless you just really want to just look at your child with hate. Um, but you could tell um, through her eyes that she did not value me as another human being. And then um, she began to act the part or play the role of someone who did not value someone of color because um, she would, she would, do things while we were standing in line, making it seem like we were holding her up or something of that nature. You know, the line was super long, so we couldn't have held her up any longer than what it was going to be held up, right? But anyways, um, she was giving us looks and things, so I really didn't consider that to be something um, or neither did it impact me heavily, but it wasn't until I got into the teenage years that I really found out I was Black and not just in America, but in the state of Mississippi, when I was um, hanging out with my friends and we were walking to the store. And as we were walking to the store, um, phlegm was caught up in my throat because anytime I eat anything dealing with dairy, I get excess phlegm in my throat. And so I was drinking a milkshake and then I ended up having to spit. Just going to say what it was. You know, I had to spit. And um, walking alongside the road, bunch of beautiful houses alongside the road. And we're just walking. And this thing, you know, I just hogs up spit and spit in the ditch. And then there's an elderly white lady sitting in her yard and she screams out, nigger, don't you spit in my grass. Mm -hmm. And um, when she say that, you know, it shocks me because I never 
up to that point. I think I was around the age of 15, 16, or maybe 17. Up until that point, I had never been called the N-word. I'd never been called a nigger, um, not even by family members. Um, I grew up, and I know that in the rap world, um, the black rappers would call each other things. I didn't grow up liking rap, so, you know, there was nothing for me. Um, I was one of those old souls because I was I was not raised apostolic. I was raised in the Baptist church. And so in the Baptist world, anything went at that time. Missionary Baptist, to be exact. Um, you were only supposedly holy from 10 to 12 while you were at church. But anything else was free for all outside of that time frame, even on a Sunday. But yeah. um, I, w- um, I didn't care for rap music growing up. Absolutely. At all. Um, so I was never called, um, uh, what up nigga? What's up, man? I, I was never called that, you know, by my mm-hmm. friends and by my family members. And so hearing it from this elderly white lady as I'm going down the street and it was nigger more proper. Um, first of all, it shocked me. I was upset, but not upset enough to respond. My reaction was more shocked than, um, uh, being heated or upset because, that was my very first serious run-in overtly with racism. And so I, I really couldn't say anything. I, man, it, it just shocked me. And then when I kept going, you know, I literally didn't say anything back to the lady. I just could never stop looking at her. And so after I kept going and walking past her house, I was just like, that was weird. And then I get home and then I just thought about it like, wow, I was just called. A nigger. That had never happened to me before. So I didn't know how to process it. Let me put it yeah. that way. And so that's when I really found out that, hey, racism is still alive and well. Had heard about it, read about it in our history books, seen um, everything dealing with the civil rights movements, um, things that happened with Native Americans, um, when the settling of the new land and all of that. But never in my wildest dream did I imagine the things that were written in the history books would happen to me in the early 2000s of my life. Yeah. Now, did you, um, did you, do you, did you recall ever having a conversation with your family, your mom, you know, siblings even of sitting you down and, and, and explaining, Hey, this might happen to you because you're black. Did, did you ever have those conversations or do you think maybe not having something like that is is what caught that caught you off guard so much when when that lady said that? To be totally honest, my mom never sat me down and had those kind of conversations with me to the extent that you maybe call this. Mm-hmm. Um, she always said that um, Rico, there will be some whites that you meet that feel that they are superior to you and mm-hmm. that you are inferior. And they're going to make it seem as though they're better than you. But that's as far as the conversation went. She never told me that you may one day be called a nigger. She had educated me, you know, um, and I know that's a a cringe, cringe worthy word of people saying, but hey, it exists. You know, and so this is clickbait church, you know, tough topic. So um, I don't take pleasure in saying that word absolutely at all. Um, Probably won't say it hardly any anymore after this interview but this just goes to show the seriousness of the situation but um my mom never sat me down and completely had those long talks with me about i may be called this i may be 
um, marginalized because of the color of my skin or anything. My mom literally taught me to love everybody. And I know that sounds cliche. um, And a lot of people want to say that, but I can honestly say my mom literally taught me how to love everybody. But that was my mom. Now, when I got around my aunts and my uncles and my mom was not present, I never heard anything nice said about a white person. Hmm. Never in my life. And I would go back and tell my mom and my mom would go and confront them and say, don't put this in his head. And, and she would say the things that they, they, they said to me. She was like, don't, don't say that to him. He's not going to be calling people that. And so my mom literally treated me and, and taught me to treat everyone with dignity and respect. Her only, um, on, her only hinge word was um, you, you give respect to get respect. She said, if they don't respect you, then you don't have to respect them. She mm-hmm. said, but you are responsible for how you treat them. You're just not responsible for how they treat you. And so yeah. that's what my mom taught me. So that's why it was so much a shock to me, as you stated, because I was not taught by my mom that this could literally be your reality one day. Yeah. Now, you mentioned that you have three daughters. I think you said your oldest is six. Six, and- yes. You know, thinking about that conversation, I, I have two kids of my own. I have a seven-year-old boy and a, a four-year-old girl. And so right. uh, I, I actually just had a conversation with my son last night for the first time um, mm-hmm. about about race and, and skin color. And it was it was um, it, it was very, very intriguing to hear it from the the mind and, and the mouth of a seven-year-old kid, right? Wow. But <laughs> but sure. um what what about you from the perspective of being a father now and, and mm-hmm. having three little girls? How do you think that you will approach that uh, with them um, in the future or, or, you know, when they're younger, when they're, when they're teenagers, how, how do you think that you'll approach that from, from that perspective? Well, my wife and I have had a conversation about that um, more than once uh, in depth conversations. And I was in prayer one time. And this was um, my oldest is six. So it was six years ago um, when she was born into the world. Um, before then, while my wife was pregnant with her and while she was incubating inside of my wife, we were having conversations about, okay, how are we going to explain to them skin colors, um, identity politics? How are we going to explain to them um, things that are going on in the real world? And uh, we began to talk and we came to the uh, came to the agreement that we didn't want to put any micro racism labels on them by teaching them to say my white friend, my my white boyfriend, my white um, girlfriend, my friend got a white girlfriend or such, 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 uh, or a Hispanic girlfriend or a Mexican girlfriend or whatever. Um, we, we, we promised to not teach them those micro labels. And so I was in prayer in the closet one day and I began to ask God, um, what should I do about this? And God literally answered me back that I was not to teach them that they were black and that their friends would be white or Mexican or Asian or whatever friends they He said that they will learn it. And that is what God gave me. And so I was amazed at the response that I got because of the simple fact, you know, God is a God of knowledge and he wants us to be knowledgeable. 
But God was telling me how perverted those labels had become. And that once you begin to categorize people and label them by the color of their skin, though we should know them, um, the earlier you start doing it, um, it could be seen as the better, the earlier the better. But you have to also think about what does it mean? You know, their minds are so inquisitive at that age. Um, they're so inquiring. Um, so they're going to begin. So what does it mean to be black? What does it mean to be brown? So then you have to go down this long rabbit hole of history and tell them this. And they're not even old enough to process this. And so God literally let me know that they were going to learn it, but it didn't need to come from me. But when they learned it, that's when I needed to have the talk with them. And so it wasn't until um, this year, it was literally this school year, rather, my daughter came um, home. It wasn't this year, 2020, it was the school year um, in October, I believe. It was the month of October. I'll never forget it. And she came home and see, I picked her up from school and she said, Daddy, I'm black. And I remember my raw reaction. I was up set. I was yeah. livid. I turned and looked at her and I said, who told you that? <laughs> why, why are they teaching you that? What yeah. does that have to do with anything you're doing in your classroom right now? Yeah. And so she was five at the time before, because she had just turned six in January, but she was five at the time. And then God immediately reminds me, I told you that she wasn't going to learn it from you, but that she was going to learn it. And what she do, that's when you start having the conversations with her. God said, you've done your part. And so God was like, ease up off of her. And I did. And when God reminded me of that, it was like a wow moment. Light bulb went off like, wow. My wife and I literally went five whole years before we even had to have a conversation with our daughter about skin color. She literally, at the time, and uh, right now, I don't think she really can still do it to the fullest of extent. But she could not get he, get on here and I could not call her to the front and she could not see your face and say, oh, daddy, there goes your white friend. She couldn't say that. She yeah. could not look at a white man or a white child or a white woman or a white girl and say, that's my white friend. She could not. If you told her to say what colors, she would try to match you with the closest crayon she could, literally, and it wouldn't be white. And so we didn't teach her that. And so when it came out, that was our time to teach her that. And so she got to church and she said, and our friends at church are white. I was like, they are white according to the labeling that we received in the world. I said, but if you were to match them up with a crayon, what color would they be? And she started calling off the different shades. I said, so that lets you know that white is truly a category. Black is truly a category. Because there's nothing on me black but my hair. My hair is black, as you can tell. But I'm brown. You yeah. get what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And so um, that is when it became real for me um, that my daughters are going to have to have this conversation that, yes, um, I'm not only black in America, but I'm black in the world. And so we handled those. Uh, we crossed those bridges when they come. We have not done that with all three of our daughters. As the knowledge is dispersed to them, that's when we are open up the box and disperse more knowledge to them. So that's how we handle that. Some people may say, man, you're 
your your train of thinking is wrong and well, I got that from God Almighty. You parent the way you parent when God tell it to you, I parent the way I parent when God tell it to me. And so that's the way I'm doing it. Absolutely. That's great. Yeah, I, I just to share my experience with with Paxton, my son, it was it was so mm-hmm. interesting because uh so like I said, he's seven. We we've never talked about it before and we we've never talked about um we've never brought up Martin Luther King or anything like that. And and that's what ended right. up happening was uh, he overheard us having a conversation uh, in the car, my wife and I, and uh, we right. were talking about some of the more recent events. And um, I, I brought up about the podcast and, and, and Ashley and I were talking about uh, uh, some of the conversations we were going to be having. And mm-hmm. um, I thought, you know, he's listening to this. I, I just need, I just need to ask him. I said, you know, Paxton, why, um, do you know that sometimes people uh, look at people differently, you know, just because they look different? And he said, you know, yeah, but we learned in school this year that Martin Luther King came so that he could save all of that. And I was like, oh, man, from, <laughs> wow. from, the, from the mouth of babes, I said, yeah, what did Martin Luther King do and what did he say? He said, I have a dream that wow. kids – or that people of, of all color and all countries can hold mm-hmm. hands together and be friends. And wow. I was like, if you want to put it in kid words, yeah, that, that is a perfect way to say it. He and, it up um, perfectly. I, I, I'm thankful. And, and this is not a pat on my back or, or anything. I just, from no. my, you know, we're talking about the parenting perspective, right? But right. we, we, my, my wife and I, we, we live in a, a very diverse city in, in DFW mm-hmm. in, in Texas. And, um, Paxton's one of his best friends is uh, a little boy whose family comes from India and uh-huh. uh, another one of his friends are, are immigrants from, uh, uh, from the UK. And, and mm-hmm. there's just, there's people from all over the world that have come to Plano, Texas for whatever reason. And this is where they live. And, and he goes to school with them and he has never once come home and said, Oh, you know, uh, the boy with the brown skin. Or, you know, the, wow. the, that white kid, he never says that he'll go by their names. And sometimes you can, you can make some assumptions by the names. And sometimes you can right. just go, okay, when we get to class, show me which, which kid that is. And he'll go, oh, you know, the one, you might say the one with the brown hair, uh, but he may, he's, he very rarely ever references that skin. And I, that has been such right. a, uh, a, not a testament to anything I have done right, but it's just such a mm-hmm. testament to what the way kids are raised. You know, um, I I, I don't remember when I was growing up, I don't remember when I, as a white person, Mm -hmm. made the distinction from when I started referencing people by their skin color. I know that I did at some point, right? Like as a teenager, I remember at some point, that's when I I started talking about my white friends or my black friends. Mm -hmm. And um, I I don't know what it is that that makes us switch between that. I think it's some of it has to do with being human. And as we grow up and we're human, we're sinful beings and we begin to make assumptions and judgments. And some of it's just what we overhear and and the homes that we grow up in and and Mm -hmm. politics can play into it and who mom and dad are voting for. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's, it's such an interesting thing to think about, uh, I see my seven-year-old and think I, I want him to keep that mindset. Keep keep exactly where you're at right now. Don't don't change that because it's such a great way to look at it. But at the same time, I right. know that at some point it's going to change, and I'm going to have to have a hard conversation about right. it again. And so, 
um, you know, kind of to continue this, but moving away from us, us personally in the sense of parenting and all that is, okay. Let, let's get to some of these hard questions. Let's, let's let oh, some of the questions that, that I have, uh, I have personally, I've asked other friends and other, other people before. And, and mm-hmm. I, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to ask these questions and I'm going to shut up because it's not my place. It's, 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 this is the Rico show right now. And so no, I, I want to give you a chance <laughs> to talk. I want to give you a chance to speak on these for a moment and give me your opinion. I might have some follow-up questions, but let's yeah. jump into this. Um, the first question is, uh, it's a pretty, it's, it can be connected to some politics here and some people are going to agree or disagree with the term, but do mm-hmm. you believe that white privilege is real? And, and do you think that white people, a lot of white people, uh, are, they, they don't recognize that it is real and that it exists? Um, do I believe that white privilege is real? Um, I not only believe that it's real, I know that it's real. Um, having been one that has been um, on the receiving end of the bat that was not favorable um, as it pertains to white privilege getting its way. Um, I know for a fact that it is real. Um, Do I feel that a lot of people do not recognize it? I wouldn't say that a lot of people don't recognize it. I would say that a lot of people fail to admit and fail to, how do I want to say this? A lot of people not only fail to admit that it is real, a lot of people fear in admitting that it is real because they are they 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 feel that they will be perceived as one that benefits from white privilege. Well, to be honest, they probably will benefit from white privilege just by them being white. Um, they just Hey, that's just the nature of the beast in this world. Um, it's not something that I dealt myself. It's not something that they dealt. Um, it, it started off with whatever generation it started off with, and it just got passed down to them. And so that is just the nature of the beast that they probably will benefit from white privilege inadvertently, indirectly. Um, some people not by choice. Some people just because they are white. And not saying that everyone who benefits from white privilege love it. I don't feel that everyone who benefits from white privilege love it. But I do feel that um, a lot of people who are white will benefit from it. And that can easily be seen um, when you go and apply for jobs. If, if, if you go and be interviewed, say, for instance, there's a black man getting interviewed, there's a white man getting interviewed, and there's a Chinese man getting interviewed. Right. Um, A lot of people would want to believe that if they're going to this company, Fortune 500, who are known to be diverse, but they're not overtly diverse. If I if that makes sense, Um, I I hired enough to be in compliance with EEO. Um, But, you know, am I really diverse in my mindset? I've done enough so it can be in the statistics on paper for my company. But am I really looking for this company to be majority diverse or majority one color? Right. And so say, for instance, the black man, the Chinese man and the white man all go and apply. And you will believe that the most qualified candidate will get the job. The one who knocks the interviewer out of the park. Well, say, for instance, they're all equal 
um, on the same playing field with the degree, um, the education, the intelligence, um, the speech, uh, speaking intellectually when they go and do the interview. Say, for instance, all three of them knock it out of the park. So now what will be the common denominator? What will be the deciding factor of who gets this job? I don't want to say nine times out of 10 that it'll be the white person, but I'm definitely not going to say five and six times out of 10. So that number is somewhere between seven and eight, eight and a half, almost nine. And statistics, uh, when people begin to study uh, statistics, that literally is there in the data pool for you to pool and see that that exists. This is not just something that we are saying um, they can get away from that. People started doing statistics for a reading, reason, pulling this type of data so that they can see, wait a minute, this is not just, this is no longer them feeling this way. We now have facts behind their feelings. And this is showing to be this way. All you have to do is look at, look at a company's statistics and the statistics will speak for themselves. The percentage rates will speak for themselves. Um, if you have a company of 1,000 employees, uh, why is it that 81% are white? If the company, it, um, do you mean to tell me that 81% more white people applied than any other? Or why is it that 81% more white people applied at this company? Do, do you have a history? Is there a stigma about your company that people know about that, man, I may as well not even put my application in there. And so, yes, white privilege does exist. And some people do not want to recognize. There are some that will recognize it, but they're not very many. They're not very many. Um, if we were to take um, a survey of the millions of people who are in America who are considered to be white, I guarantee you, most of them will answer that survey, no, that they do not benefit from white privilege. Well, banking systems, mortgage systems, and any other type of system, car, car dealerships, all of them will show it to be the complete opposite. I worked in banking. That was my profession before God called me into the ministry. And I saw how loans were turned down. Um, I even was one who had to turn down some loans. But then I also saw one where two people, a white lady and a black lady, came in with the exact same credit score. And both of their credit history was very poor. And I denied both of them. I denied both of them. But the white lady made a phone call to higher ups on me. And the higher ups came down and approved the loan. Based on our system, she was not supposed to be approved. She did not even meet the minimum credit score. In fact, she was 100 and something points below at Regions Bank. But she made a phone call. And her phone call got her a 30-something thousand dollars loan. Well, I don't believe that if that Black person had made that same phone call, it would have happened. I, I do not believe that. I, I worked at that branch long enough to see it to not manifest that it would have happened. She wouldn't, have, she wouldn't have even had a chance. And so, yeah. yes, white privilege does exist. I, um, 
I want to read a few. You mentioned some stats, so I, I did have some here on deck that I want to mention. Okay. These are um, and this is unrehearsed. U we didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know this that. is completely yeah. uh, unrehearsed, but this is from uh, U.S. News put out a study, and it says that people with black sounding names had to send out fifty percent more job applications than people with white wow. sounding names to get a callback. Wow. Uh, a black man is three times more likely to be searched at a traffic stop and six times more likely to go to jail than a white man. Wow. If a black person kills a white person, he or she is twice as likely to receive the death sentence as a white person who kills a black person. And blacks serve up to 20% more time in prison than white people for the same crimes. And Any blacks crimes. are 38% more likely to be sentenced to death than white people for the exact same crimes and so um, wow as a white guy uh i can tell you i grew up for a very long period of time hearing mm -hmm. um the term white privilege and did not did not think it was real did not believe right. it was real and did not I, I thought it was a uh, a political tool and i'm sure you've mm -hmm. heard that before right yes it's a yes. political tool from the left trying to uh, uh keep us divided keep us divided and show um, the black man how to vote all of yeah. These. Yeah. Yeah. I, and and I, I believed and I don't think I ever said those things, but as a teenager and probably in my early 20s, I truly uh, um, thought whatever this privilege thing is that's being talked about, that's that's not something I have, you know. Right. Um, but but there it's interesting to me about what, what's interesting about white privilege is it doesn't matter if you admit that you have it or not. You're still benefiting from it. You're gonna still benefit from it. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you're poor or if you're rich. You're still going to benefit from it if you. You're are still white. gonna benefit from it. I cannot deny that I have a door that I walk in and out of it. Whether I want to acknowledge whether my front door is there or not, I have a door that I got to turn the handle on just to get outside. Me mm -hmm. not acknowledging that that door is there does not mean that is not going to be utilized by me, if mm. that makes sense. Maybe a simple yeah. analogy, but that 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 kind of makes sense to me. In the statistics that you read off, um, interestingly, um, that you brought up those names, the white-sounding names or the black-sounding names, uh, I got hired for a bunch of my jobs because my name did not sound black. Um, mm. My government name, or my official name, rather, is not Rico Smith. My government name is Rodriguez Cortez Smith. And so mm. when they looked at my application, you could have seen the faces <laughs> when I walked into the room because they literally expected a Hispanic man to walk in. Because get this, on just about all of my applications, I would never answer the question for race. Mm. I would always choose to decline. Always. And because I wanted to see if I chose to decline um, my race being um, factored in, would they still call me? Would they be inquisitive to see, okay, let's see who he is. He didn't say he was African-American or black or other. He didn't say any of that. He chose choose not to respond. And so when that option became available on applications, I would utilize the heck out of it. I would utilize it. And mm -hmm. I would get calls. And when I would go to say, my name is Rodriguez Smith, I'm here for an interview at such and such time, um, the person sitting at the front desk would be like, 
<laughs> they look back down. They look at my full name. They look back up. Then they go and tell. And then when I walk into the room, the ones who were not aware of what the person at the front desk may have said, they look at me, their heads are down. Then when they look up, then I see a look of shock and they quickly change it so that I won't recognize the shock. It's like two seconds, yeah. split second, two seconds. But I can see the look of shock because my name does not sound black. It sounds Hispanic. It sounds Mexican, Puerto Rican, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. And a lot of people have asked me, where did you, where did your mom get the name from? Um, my pastor even preached on that um, back in 2017 at our former church and the power of a name. And he said, we need to go and look up what our names mean. And so I went to research and look up the meaning of a name. And I found out the meaning of my first and middle name. And both mean rich, rich young, rich, strong ruler, prince, ruler, courageous, brave. And then Rico means the exact same. And so then I went to question my mom, like, mom, where did you get this name from? We have absolutely no one in my family with the name Rodriguez. We have absolutely no one in my family with the name Cortez, not in our family lineage, absolutely at all, not even a name that hints at it. And so I wanted to know, where did you come up with this name? She said, baby, I didn't even have a name for you until the day you were born, when they brought me the clipboard to fill out. She said, something just came over me and just said, name him Rodriguez Cortez Smith. And I was like, the meaning of my name is so powerful. No one of the enemy fights me so much. Because remember, significance was in Bible names. Great significance. And I don't think that has changed in this day and time. And so when my wife and I were getting ready to name our daughters, and I'll be very brief at this point, when we got ready to name our daughters, we sat down and brainstormed. And we both said, I can bring her in and she can attest to this. We don't want to give them black sounding names. We want, when they look at the application for college, for cars, for mortgages, for um, jobs, we want them to look at a white sounding name so that our babies can at least get an interview or get accepted. Those were the exact words verbatim for me and my wife. And that is why our daughters are named what they are named. And, and that that's shock. It's not shocking, but it's just, it's, it, it makes me just go, man, that's not one thing I've ever thought of having to do with thinking of a, of a name for the sake of whether or not they'll get hired or whether or not they, wow. will, you know, that, that, that's just, that's not something that's ever crossed my mind. And again, just another example, I think that uh, going back to the the question is, is, uh, another version of that from white privilege is that just having that privilege, having the benefit of my skin color, there's just things I, I don't think about. You know, one of the, one of those stats mentioned was about being pulled over. How right. many times you're pulled over and, and how that happens. Yes. And um, no, I can say I'm a not lot the about best driver. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not the best driver. So I've been pulled that. over quite a few times. And, mm-hmm. uh, but out of all the many times that I have been pulled over, I, I've never been asked to get out of the car to be searched. And, um, even in the amount of tickets that I've got compared to how many times I've pulled over, it's 25% or less. And so that's not something that, that, that I read that stat and go, right. man, that's crazy to me. Like that, that right. just is mind blowing because I haven't ever had that opportunity to, to even, you know, for a police officer to come and have their hand on their gun. It's very rare that they, it, it, when they see me, you know, the, it's just, it's not something I experience. 
do you have any you have any stories about that or my anything you want to share? My wife will tell you she has been with me either in the same car or right behind me in our second car every time I've gotten stopped. Every time. And of all the times I've gotten stopped, I will literally say the high number of 90% I've always been accused of having some form of drugs, weapons, or alcohol either on me or in my system. Of course, not the weapons in my system, but alcohol and drugs. Um, I remember, evidently, I live in Mississippi, okay? So in Madison County, I got stopped in Ridgeland, Mississippi, and also in also we have Madison County, but we also have the city embedded in Madison County, which is called Madison, Mississippi. Well, Madison and Ridgeland are two cities in the county, Madison County, and they are literally five minutes apart from one another, if that long. And so I've been stopped in Madison, Mississippi of Madison County, in Ridgeland, Mississippi of Madison County. And both times I was stopped were by white officers um, in those two cities. Got to stop way more than that, but these two cities come to mind. Um, And one time it was on Labor Day. I'll never forget it. 2014, September 1st, Labor Day was a Monday. It was either September 1st or September 2nd. We had just come from our church picnic from our home church, which was two and a half hours away. We were just moving to Madison County. We had our cars loaded up, taking all of our um, things down there because I had went ahead of my wife and gotten a job at Regent Bank and got an apartment for us and found somewhere to live because we were living with our in-laws uh, while she was pregnant. And then we finally got a place of our own two and a half hours away. And we're driving there at 11 something at night, almost 12 o'clock a.m. And it's Labor Day. It's a holiday. You got to understand on holiday weekends, people love to get drunk. People love to do drugs. People love to get wild and party and do those things, you know. And the police are out in droves. And the police are out in droves. And I'm driving and I'm driving in a black Nissan Altima. I've never liked tinted windows. My wife would tell anybody. So none of our cars have tinted windows. I told her, you're not giving me another strike, another reason to be stopped. And that's literally the truth for me. That's our reality. And so I said, we will not have tinted windows. You will always be able to see. This cop follows me literally for 10 minutes. And as we're turning into the road that leads up to our apartment, he finally turns his lights on me. I pulled into um, a restaurant parking lot. My wife go ahead of me and she whips around into a pet shop parking lot, a far off, about 100 feet off, so she can catch the whole thing, watching me. She's only headphones in my ear. And she said, Rico, I already know you've been stopped so many times before by white cops that you always already have an attitude when they come to your door. She said, please do not argue with this police tonight. I said, he stopped me for the wrong reason I am. That's what I told her. I was a hothead. And so he comes to the window and I roll it down and I say, yes, sir. And he says, "Um, don't you know you were veering? I said, I was veering? You mean to tell me I was swerving for 10 minutes? You followed me for the entire 10 minutes and you decided to stop me after I swerved for 10 minutes and I passed like 50 or 60 cars in those 10 minutes. You didn't stop me when I first started swerving because what? Why? Why didn't you stop me? 
I just wanted to see how long you were going to do it. I was like, well, that don't make any sense because you allowed me to put others at risk of being killed. If I was swerving, as you say I was, going all over the lines, um, don't you think I was putting others at risk of having a head-on collision? I said, why did you wait a whole 10 minutes before you stopped me? And he said, because I just want to see where you were going. I said, no, let's be honest. I said, no one out here but me and you. I'm sitting in the car. I said, so let's be real with one another. I looked at the time. I said, it's almost 12 a.m. I said, it's Labor Day night. I said, I have an air freshener up in my window. I said, as you can see, it's not the black air freshener because there's a stigma here in Mississippi. You have the black air freshener in your window that hanging down that, that says that you have it in there. Black ice is what it's called to kill the smell of marijuana. And so I said, well, this is, it was orange air freshener. I told him this is orange. I said, um, but my car is full and I'm black. I said, and I'm driving on a holiday night. You stopped me because you profiled me. I said, and I guarantee you, you want to know, do I got drugs and alcohol in my car? So I said all of that for him. I was expecting him to say no. The guy comes back and say, since you've said that, yes, that's exactly what I want to know. Have you been drinking? Have you been smoking? How much weed do you got in there? He starts trying to stick his head in my car. I was like, you don't have a certain warrant to search me. I said, sir, I'm a minister of Jesus Christ. That's what I told him. I said, I'm saved and sanctified. I said, the only thing I get high off of is the Holy Ghost. I'm speaking boldly to him these words. And I said, you can, you're more than welcome to search my car. I said, I don't have alcohol. I said, it's late. I just came from our church picnic two and a half hours away. I have to go to work tomorrow. I said, I'm just trying to get home and get all my stuff in our new apartment so that I can get settled and get some rest. I said, I didn't do anything wrong. I wasn't veering. He said, I just wanted to see, did you have anything on you? He said, what about weapons? How many guns you got? I said, sir, the only weapon I carry is my holy Bible. I said, I'm not like you. I don't, I don't need that on my waist to defend me. I said, I don't believe in having to carry guns. Mm. I said, my weapon is the Bible. He said, pop your trunk. I said, well, you don't have a search warrant to search me. So, you know, I'm not popping my trunk. I said, now you're free to look if I give you permission to look. I said, but because you don't have a search warrant, I don't even have to comply with it. I said, so what is it that you really want? Give me your driver's license and registration. I gave it to him. He goes to his car, comes back. Our insurance had just expired. Mm. I'm giving you a ticket for no insurance. I said, that is not what you really wanted to get me for. You really thought you were going to get me for something much worse. I said, what have I done to you? What have I done to you, really? And then he said, we'll see you in court and walks off. And that was one of many experiences of the same that happened to me since I've been living in the Jackson metro area. My wife has been with me just about mm -hmm. every time. And she would tell you that this is no lie. This is our reality. This is what I faced. And another time, very short, was I was getting done, getting a haircut, and he followed me all the way to my apartment. And as soon as I'm getting ready to go into the parking spot of my apartment, I take off my seatbelt. Well, I'm literally three feet from the parking spot. He stops me and says, I'm driving without a seatbelt on. I said, sir, I'm about to park in the parking spot. 
I just, you saw me when I unhooked it. What do you, what do you mean? He said, I'm going to give you a ticket. I said, that's not why you stopped me. You want to see where I was going, didn't you? And then we got into a little heated exchange. And he literally thought the same thing. I had drugs. I mean, man, mind you, it is 11 o'clock a.m. on a Saturday morning. I said, sir, I do not. I give him the same jargon I gave the first one. And we'll see you in court. And he left and went by his business. So, brother, I'm telling you, um, we as black men, black women, we are taught. My mother-in-law tells me every time when we're traveling back home or even when I just go out to get my family something to eat. Rico, if a police stop you, have everything up on the dashboard and have your hands on the dashboard where they can see them and always state what you're going to do when you mm. get ready to do it. So every time I go out, I'm not going to say I fear for my life, but the reality is there that I might not come home to my family. And it's a real yeah. reality. People, people need to accept that. That's a reality for me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I think the first time that I I remember hearing of of a you know a, a news story a national news story that happened mm-hmm. that made me even second guess um, what I thought about how police officers handled situations um, I, and, I, and I wish I would have looked it up to make sure I got his name um, but it, it's a, a black guy's driving a car and, mm-hmm. and his his uh, girlfriend or wife was with him and he was a concealed carry. Uh, license holder actually and had had a a gun on him but he made sure and he told the police officer that right the police officer said i need to see your license and your concealed carry license and he mm-hmm. he reached down he said okay it's it's right here it's right here i'm gonna get it uh i get philando castile i believe that's who it was right he reached down to to reach for that after saying multiple times it's right here right here and while he I was reaching the for the license he was told to get on facebook live his, his, I think, I think his girlfriend or wife went his on Facebook Live, and the police officer pulled out the gun and shot him. Started shooting him down when for doing exactly what he asked him to do. Exactly what he and asked. And I, I watched that video, and was I was shocked. I, I, I was I, like, you can hear him saying exactly, doing exactly what he warned the police officer. I'm reaching, I'm reaching right now. I'm doing, he was doing exactly what he's told to do. And I remember thinking about like, just the, I, I personally, I have a concealed carry license. And when, you know, the, the, the law is in Texas, when you're pulled over, you have to give both your license and your concealed carry license to the officer. Right. And I don't ever think about as soon as he walks to my door, let me reach in my back pocket and grab mm-hmm. my wallet and take it out. I don't ever think about the fact that I could, it could look like I'm reaching for a gun. And I've right. never had a, a police officer even double check me on that. Um, and to watch that video though, was just so, it was, it was shocking to right. my core about the difference in just, he didn't have any attitude or anything. He just tried to reach for a wallet that he was warning. He, he was about. very calm and in the video. Very calm. Yeah. Incredibly. And cooperative. And so I, I you know, I, now we've we've mentioned a name of one of these mm-hmm. these social issues that have happened, and more recently, mm-hmm. there's uh, there's George Floyd, there's Ahmaud Armory that's happened. Um, this episode's being recorded in May, and uh, during COVID nineteen, right. and 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 two of these situations happened within just the last three weeks or so, and mm-hmm. um, one involving a police officer, one just right. involving some some commando, some commandos basically that went right. out and decided to take the law into their own hands. Yes. And that, I don't even know how to express 
mm-hmm. how every time something like this happens, and especially when it's on video, that that you watch those videos, and I, I make myself watch these videos because it, once again, if it's shocking to me, it's still because I haven't accepted the fact that this is a this is a problem. Right. If it's still shocking to me, it's because I haven't accepted the fact that it is real. And mm-hmm. a, a very good friend of mine. Uh, who was who black posted on social media the other day. She said, when, when this happened with George Floyd, she said, I, I can't even be surprised anymore when these happen. True. But I watched the video and was still shocked. Like, right. look at the look on his face when this has happened. Why, why is the officer acting in this way? I, I'm still trying to question what is this man doing with his life and, and why would he make these choices? And, right. and my friend, she just said, it's not even shocking anymore. I should be surprised, but I'm not. It's just common. It's just every day. It's true. And, and that's something that I, I can't understand. And I can't, I can't even under uh, put into words how, how it makes me feel as a, as a person to, 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 to know that there's pain happening, but that it's just something that's so uncommon for me that I don't know how to uh, uh, empathize with it. You know, mm-hmm. I, I want to, and that's why I wanted to have this conversation with you because yeah. I want to be able to empathize as closely as I can wow. about these situations. And, and I appreciate um, you for that. Absolutely, man. Um, so I, I do want to uh, continue to, to kind of move on to some of these yeah. other questions. And, yeah. Um, we're we're going to kind of change, change, um, um, not subjects, but change kind of the emphasis here. We've been talking uh-huh. more about specifically um, not really the church, but just, just white and black and, and skin color and how that's different. Let's change a little bit to, um, to talking to white people directly. Let's, mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit about um, um, some of this. And so I, I grew up saying some of these things and hearing uh-huh. some of these things, and I hear, I've heard them a lot lately. What, what, do you, what are your thoughts on the statements, I don't see color, uh, I'm colorblind, or I have black friends, so I can't be racist. Mm-hmm. What, what are your thoughts on those? Is that, is that offensive? Is it ignorant? What, what, what do you think about those statements when white people make so, them? Those thoughts are, um, I'm not going to be harsh, but it's a reality. Those thoughts are truly um, ignorant. Those thoughts are truly insensitive. Um, for you to say that you are colorblind, um, did the doctor, did the optometrist prescribe you legally colorblind? Um, for you to say that, um, I have black friends, um, so that don't make me racist. Listen, all of us, um, have tolerance. All of us accept who we deem, um, acceptable. Um, all of us have those one friends, whether there's white, like you are, if you, the white friends that you have, um, or the black friends that I have, and of course, I don't label them as bad. We're just doing this for the sake of this interview. Um, the black friends I have um, that a lot of people wouldn't even have as a friend, I tolerate them because I accept what I see in them. But they're my black friends, and they're black like me. And so for me to say when I get a white friend that because I got white friends, I accept all white people and I'm not racist against white people. Well, what forged the relationship with me and that one white friend to begin with? How did it come? Were we working together? Were we raised together? Um, did we go to school together, college? Were we roommates? Did we 
uh, just so happened to end up on in the same group and on a fishing trip or at camp or something, not just church camp, but I'm saying like boys camp or anything. How, how did that white friend get into my life? And how is I, as a black guy, get into my white friend's life? What happened? How did our paths cross to begin with? So that is to be taken into account. So how did you come to have that white friend? And so when you understand the history and the context behind how they became friends, then, yeah, no wonder that is your friend because the circumstances presented himself. But that does not mean that you're not racist because you can have a white friend being a black guy, but still not like white people. You can just view him as, man, this white guy get it. He just like one of us. Well, on the flip side, the whites can be like, this black guy gets it. He's just like one of us. Um, it's a deal of assimilation has gone on there. We have learned to talk to one another. We have learned to um, communicate with one another. We have learned how to cohabitate as friends. So that does not mean just because you are my friend, I'm not racist. It means that I accept you. And so um, when I hear people say the things that I am not, I mean, or I am colorblind and I don't see color or God doesn't see color, then apparently you're not talking about the God of the Bible that I read. And apparently um, you're living in the cartoon world or um, back in the pantomime days when they did the cartoons that were full of black and white and black and white are still colors. So um, you're living in some type of fantasy land when you say, I don't see color. It's insensitive because to see my color is to appreciate my color. To see my color is to appreciate our differences. Uh, and not just my color, for me to see your color is to appreciate your difference and who God made you to be, who God made me to be. To see one another's color is to appreciate that they come in many shapes, sizes, and colors in this world. I see so many quotes about the Crayola box, that people don't buy the Crayola box for just one color. We may buy the Starburst pack for just one color. Everybody wants to buy just a pink. <laughs> Everybody wants to buy just a pink Starburst or just a red Starburst. I'm a pink one. I like the red, too. Y'all can have the orange and the yellow, um, but no one wants to buy a crayon box, which is all red, because you're not going to always color things that are all red. They're going to have a variety of colors. And so to say that you are colorblind means that you do not appreciate people for the way they look. That's the way I feel about it. You do not appreciate the differences you have. In fact, I see it as um, a scapegoat for you to not even having to understand the differences that you have, if mm. that makes sense. Because yeah. if I'm going to see your skin color is white, then I need to understand what all comes along with being white. I need to educate myself on what all um, comes with the skin color white. What privileges do you have? And I'm not just talking about white privilege now. What downfalls as a culture do, do the whites have? What perceptions are given to the whites by other cultures, other cultures and ethnicities and races? Um, so to look at your skin color and say, man, I just accept you for who you are. I don't even see your skin color. That should be seen as an insult because it's when you understand that we are different skin tones 
That does not mean we have to get into a deep subject about um, racism and the, the oppression and things like that. It just means that it makes me appreciate you even more who you are. Who do I have in my circle? Is everyone mm. in my contact list, do they all look like me? Do they all think mm. like me? So it makes me appreciate our differences. It lets me know what you bring to the table. Because no matter, not even speaking of ministry now, if I'm going to accept you for who you are and the skin color you're in, now give me your perspective of your worldview. How does the world look through your lens? What was it like for you growing up white? And then now you learn what was it like for me to grow up black? So when you say I'm colorblind, you want to say that I'm also blind to your worldview. Mm. I'm blind to your worldview. I'm blind to your perspective. I don't see y'all getting treated like that all the time. You're, 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 you're blowing this out of proportion when you get stopped by police. Yada, 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 yada. So to be colorblind to my skin color makes you colorblind to my worldview. Mm. That's, that's, that's so good. I, I like that perspective of, of being colorblind to your worldview. And, and, it's so funny too, because it, to say that we're colorblind would be like we are choosing our friends only on their personality, right? And not their family history, not their, you know, not their culture, not um, the 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 where they grew up, how much money they had. Look, all right. of those things right. play into who we are. Yes, and we've got to be able to understand and appreciate that we we grow from each other. By our differences, yes. and to say that race is not a a a difference that we have to overcome and understand, right. I think is is it's definitely naive. Well, that's Clickbait Church, hosted by me, Chris Prince. I hope you're enjoying my little experiment. You can follow or subscribe to Clickbait Church on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, or any other app that you use to get notified of every new episode. Check out clickbaitchurch.com for a list of your favorite podcast sources. This episode was written and produced by me. The theme music comes from Andrew Appleby. Thanks for listening. See you soon.